The Buddha said famously at one point, what I teach is just suffering and the end of suffering. Probably more than one of us has said this already. And so pretty much all of what he taught was kind of collected around the theme of suffering and the end of suffering. And so a lot of what we talk about (laughs) is suffering and the end of suffering. One of the pointings that the Buddha offered us around suffering in his first discourse, what is said to have been his first discourse, the discourse setting the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. In that discourse, he described the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths. And with each truth, he offered an action, something we need to undertake with respect to that truth. The truth of suffering, he said, should be understood. And so this is, maybe it sounds like a simple thing just to understand suffering, but what he's pointing to, the kind of understanding he came to around suffering is so radically different than what we habitually or or more commonly think of as suffering. And so when he points us to understand suffering, he's actually pointing to a radically different perspective. Our usual perspective around suffering often is that our ordinary perspective perhaps is is that often that some suffering is something that happens to us. We feel kind of like leaves in the wind just being buffeted around by conditions. Stuff out there makes us suffer, makes us angry, makes us frustrated. And in order to be happy, stuff out there has to change. That's our kind of more habitual way of relating to suffering. And the Buddha pointed to, as we've been saying, the suffering, what we Actually, what we call suffering isn't something that's done to us, but is, lies in our relationship to the world. Suffering, the Buddha defined in a way this dukkha, this suffering, as the result of a relationship to what's happening in the world, when that relationship is one of greed, aversion, or delusion. (coughs) So kind of that suffering is reactive emotions rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion. And people or situations or conditions in the world don't actually have the power to make us angry or to make us afraid, to make us reactive. We essentially give that power to the world 
through this reactivity. And so struggle, suffering, reactivity isn't inherent in what's happening in the world. And that's actually really good news. Because if it were inherent in what's happening in the world, there would be no hope for us to become free. Because the conditions of the world are what they are. They are impermanent, unreliable, largely uncontrollable. And yet it is possible for us to change our minds, to open to this, this opening to the reactivity, opening to the greed, aversion, and delusion is one of the conditions that supports our minds to begin to let go of the greed, aversion, and delusion. And so our minds can change. Our minds don't have to react with these habitual relationships. And yet this changing of our minds, you know, it, that doesn't mean that our minds somehow also change to think or believe that injustice or unethical behavior happening in the world is somehow okay. So this takes a, again, it's a little bit of of kind of turning our minds around what's being taught here. That when we open to what is actually happening, what we are exploring meeting is what is already here, what's already arisen. Essentially this... um, We're aligning ourselves with the truth of what's already happening. What's already here is already here. And a reaction or a a kind of a holding on or a pushing away or a confusion about what's already here simply um, confuses and obscures the situation. And so as our uh, movement, as the mind shifts to releasing greed, aversion, and delusion, it doesn't mean that we don't act in the world. This is, an, this is something that um, can be hard for us to kind of understand, especially early on in our in our practice because greed, aversion, in particular greed and aversion, have been so much the motivating forces of our actions. And when greed and aversion are at work in our minds, telling us you need to act to get that thing or get rid of that thing, fix that problem, change that. When our minds are in that world, in that, caught in that view, that view of greed, of aversion, which is essentially a delusional view. When the mind is caught by those views, it cannot fathom that there would be any other motivation or reason to act except for that greed or that aversion. And so it takes a little bit of a a leap of faith and trust to begin to let go of our habitual ways of acting in the world, of responding to injustice, of responding to unethical behavior, and exploring letting go, exploring the what it might mean if greed or aversion weren't here. When greed and aversion are not clouding the heart and the heart sees suffering, 
that heart wants to act not from confusion or anger or hatred or craving, but that heart wants to act because of compassion for the suffering. And so we begin to be more curious about the suffering that is arising in our minds. And we begin to really see how much of what we call suffering is essentially our own own mind's creation. And since we begin, as we begin to see this, a question that sometimes comes up, it certainly came up for me, as I saw my mind heading towards anger, and yet knowing anger was painful and kind of just like seeing it charging towards anger. It's like I could tell the mind was, was like clinging to something that was going to cause it suffering. It's like, why does the mind do this? Like what, what possibly can the mind be thinking? So essentially, I think our minds are really confused. I would say that our human organism has a kind of a, an orientation at some level that wants us to be happy that wants us to experience well-being. And so there's kind of a a pull in the direction of well-being, in a way. And yet the, the way our system is structured, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of as simple in some ways as, I think we mentioned this in the hall earlier, as a kind of a, a single-celled organism moving towards nourishment and away from noxious chemicals, kind of like that natural pull towards pleasant, away from unpleasant. Very natural movement in a, in, a, in a living organism. And yet the way our organism is structured, there's a lot of things happening between that pleasant experience and our pull towards it. We talked about some of this in some of these... Um, in, in, in the days, in these days past. I think I mentioned in the talk on Vedna, uh, a feeling tone, how much of our, of our uh, pull towards pleasant, away from unpleasantness, is motivated by views, beliefs. And so a lot of our, of our mind, uh, our patterns, our habits, you know, there's this movement, we want to move towards happiness and well-being, and then there's just this, this kind of way that our, our system has learned based on how it's gotten pleasure in the past. Kind of, it goes for the, the quickest route to happiness. And that's often the getting what I want or getting rid of what I don't want. And oh, oh, time and time again, we have done that. Time and time again, we have gotten what we want gotten rid of what we don't want, and had a little bit of happiness that comes from that. And so uh, we've learned that there is a little bit of happiness that comes from that. And our mind is not really looking very deeply into what's going on. And so it's kind of like our minds think that's as good as it gets. That's the best kind of happiness that's possible, that getting what I want getting rid of what I don't want. And what we're not seeing, what the mind is not seeing, it's clouded by confusion. I said the mind is fundamentally confused about what leads towards well-being. And so in that situation, the mind is caught by greed or caught by aversion and believing, get that thing, then I'll be happy. And what's going on there? 
is that the mind is basically um, in the in the situation of wanting something, let's say, getting something that I want. The mind is kind of creating the scenario in our minds about having that thing, having that pleasant experience, having somebody look at me the way I'd like them to look at me. So our mind creates this kind of image or projection or fantasy of a future moment in which I'll have that thing. And that feels good, that idea of having that. And so that's where the mind heads. But what it's missing in that moment is what's the actual present moment experience? What's actually going on in the present moment? Because what's going on in the present moment is the wanting the feeling of needing something that's not here. And already in that experience, if we were to actually look at the present moment experience, there's already suffering there. And that is obscured because our mind has taken up residence in this thought. So essentially, greed is willing to forego, is willing to, to like, just ignore, completely ignore that it's suffering now for the possibility of some happiness in the future. And so this is a confusion that when we start to investigate what's going on under the surface, we start to see the suffering that's happening in the greed itself, in the aversion itself. And that begins to give the mind a new education, a new understanding about this movement to well-being. And so our minds are confused because they're caught by habits of mind with which we have been trained. (laughs) And we have been trained to do this. So we're living often in this, these thoughts and views rather than actually meeting what's happening here and now. And if it were possible to only live in our thoughts and our views, that might be a good strategy. But reality seems to have its way of intervening, coming in and pointing out to us that things are, real, things are impermanent, unreliable, largely uncontrollable. And so the happiness that we get in that situation is fleeting. It doesn't last that long. And so I'd say most if not all of our suffering, really comes about through a struggle with this impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of experience. It's not a mistake that things are impermanent, uncontrollable, and unreliable. It's the way things are. It's not that we've failed, that things are unreliable. It's the way things are. So this is a big part of the confusion that we have misunderstandings about this basic nature of reality. at, At very fundamental levels, we think things are permanent or should be. When we want them to be, they should be. We think they should be reliable. Certainly they should be controllable. If it's not controllable, I've failed in some way. And at the same time, there's also another part of our suffering, another thread that comes in that is, uh, and suffering also seems to be connected 
not only to a kind of misunderstanding about this inherent nature of reality, but also is, is, is deeply connected with a, an inner wish to be happy, an inner wish to be safe and at ease, this inner wish to have well-being. And often the, there's suffering when these wishes seem to be out of reach. And so this, to me, this exploration around these threads, these, 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 the threads or the kind of truth of the way life is, and these deep wishes that we have, so much of my own exploration around suffering has been seeing the interplay between these two. These deep wishes, what we call, we could call core wishes for our own happiness, the well-being, safety of ourselves, our loved ones. This wish, this meta-wish. And these truths of impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. So this, this wish for well-being, this is a beautiful wish. It's a wholesome wish. It's the wish of metta. And a lot of our suffering, I think, happens when that wish kind of gets tangled up with the truth. And our suffering is this tangle. That's this knotted confusion between impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable, and this deep wish to be safe and happy and peaceful. So there's this tangle we find ourselves in. Kind of this tangle we could think of as, as um, strategies that are trying to deal with the seemingly irreconcilable nature of these wishes and these truths. We have a deep wish for safety, well-being, happiness, and we start to see the vulnerability, uncertainty, impermanence in the world, and fear is born, anxiety is born, confusion is born, anger, rage can be born when these two get tangled up. And this kind of meeting of these truth and these wishes, this is where craving is essentially a misunderstanding. The craving, the craving is, has, has interplay with both sides here. The craving, we meet the truth of impermanent, uncontrollable, perhaps, and the craving says something like, no, that's just wrong. It should not be that way. And in the meeting of those truths with craving in our mind, we may either blame ourselves for the impermanent, uncontrollable, unreliable nature of our experience, somehow feeling like we're wrong or we've failed, or we may blame the world, put it out on the world. The world is, is somehow like targeting me with these events. Or we blame somebody else for that impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of experience. So the, 
the distortion, there's a distortion there, not really taking in the truth. This is truth. And deeply tied up with that craving is often this, this wish, the wish for our own well-being, our happiness, with the, um, the, the wish for the well-being and happiness of our families and friends. And, and these two, they, they kind of collide and get tangled because it feels like if, if, I'm, if I want to be happy and healthy and safe, then there's, there's, there's something wrong if I can't control things. The uncontrollability and the f- wish for safety, those two just get so knotted up, tangled up. Because we cannot see, our minds just cannot kind of understand how these two might coexist. The wish for our safety and the truth of uncontrollability. Our mind just, it it, it has trouble holding that, that both of those are valid. We might, as we begin to touch in a little bit through our meditation practice to this truth of impermanent, unreliable, vulnerability, for instance, we might begin to touch into, you know, that, that the feeling of vulnerability that comes with this wish for safety and uh, kind of tell ourselves, well, things are impermanent. Things are uncontrollable. Vulnerability, okay, that's just the way it is. And, and it may be that that movement is kind of a, an almost denying of that wish for safety. Sometimes we can, this morning Bhante was talking about spiritual bypassing of uh, when we may, you know, kind of use the Dharma as a way to ignore or deny that we may be experiencing um, something like anger or aversion. Like, no, I'm a good Buddhist, I don't experience those things, kind of in that spiritual bypassing mode. There's also something that I'm going to call spiritual bludgeoning. We sometimes beat ourselves up with the Dharma. Kind of like, yep, things are impermanent. That wish for safety, that's, that's just, you know, that's not a valid wish. And so we may kind of you know, bl- try, to, try to beat our wishes for well-being and happiness and safety with this kind of understanding, well, things are impermanent, and so this, uh, this, this vulnerability, it's like, well, okay, that's just the way it is, this wish for safety, not a valid wish. We may think that. And yet, that wish for safety is a wholesome movement of the heart. What happens as it meets that truth of uncontrollability is that it... It, um, the clinging, the craving around that wish for safety is demanding safety in a certain way, demanding a particular result. Bhante talked about that this morning, demanding a certain kind of result. And so the, 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 exploration here is beginning to be curious about this this knot between these two between the these truths and these wishes the craving around the uh, particular way to be safe is kind of what creates this tangle when our experience is impermanent and uncertain. And so wisdom, wisdom asks us to let go of the expectations around the wishes. 
Wisdom asks us to let go of the craving for a particular outcome around these wishes, around this movement of well-being and love. It asks us to let go of particular expectations. It doesn't ask us to let go of the wishes. Wisdom actually wants us to embrace those wishes. Wisdom is wanting us to kind of simultaneously recognize these two threads. The threads of truth and the threads of love can coexist, not tangled, but interwoven. The weave of our lives can be this weave of love and wisdom, not in conflict. And so one of the kind of things I've learned is that whenever there's suffering, whenever I'm experiencing suffering, this tangle, there's a tangle going on. And that tangle, we think of the way threads get tangled, it's like the tangle It's knotted threads of love and wisdom. The knot is composed of these, it's it's a tangle because of the confusion, because of the craving. And so anytime there is suffering, it's an opportunity. It's it's like the, the, the suffering is pointing right out to us where we are resisting the truth, and where we are confused about love. It's an opportunity for us to see right into love and wisdom when we meet suffering. I certainly, in my uh, years of practice, when I saw suffering, I often did a couple different things. One, One was kind of this sense of this like, it felt like like this tumor of some like really bad thing, this anger or whatever it was, and I kind of felt like I needed to take a scalpel, and cut it out of my system, to excise it, throw it away. And if we look at the tangle, if we take scissors and cut the tangle out, we are left with a hole in our fabric. And actually, my experience is that when we're trying to get rid of something in that way, you know, thinking that this is bad, wholly bad, we're approaching our, our dukkha as something that is bad and has to be gotten rid of, what that suffering is composed of is not going to just let itself be cut out. Because again, there's these threads of love and wisdom are there waiting to be revealed in the tangle. And so, how can we do this? How can we, how can we let the tangle untangle? Another strategy that I often um, employed was when I saw something challenging I would kind of like, okay, there it is. I am going to figure it out. Put it under the microscope, find all the pieces, pull it apart, figure out what's in there. A form of greed, essentially. Greed combined with aversion. Both of them together. That too is kind of, uh, you know, that. I, I learned a lot doing that, but I also reinforced a lot of greed and aversion in doing that. 
And what I have learned is really helpful in this seeing of this tangle is to, I've like started using this word honoring, honor the tangle, respect that suffering. It's there to show us love and wisdom. Can we hold it in that way? Willingness to honor this tangle will, it's a slow process, I'd say. You know, it's, it can be a, a slow unwinding sometimes. And what is often helpful there is a kind of a gentle meeting just of the most obvious piece of whatever's here of that tangle. We may have some idea of, for instance, if there's anger, that there's some kind of fear in the middle of the anger. And so we might, in the way that I had described, have put it under the microscope, kind of like, yep, I've seen anger before, there's usually fear in there, I'll find the fear. And yes, I would find fear when I was looking for it. Or maybe, maybe there's something that we, we, we think is going on there. And so we may kind of try to dive inside of the pattern to try to find out what's going on in there. And a lot of the time, if we're looking for something, we will find it. We'll construct it even. So in my own experience, it can be really helpful to just kind of settle back and explore meeting that pattern of the tangle. Think of it as a kind of a warm bath of mindfulness and wisdom that lubricates the tangle, kind of lets itself loosen some gently. And as it, as it loosens, there's little pieces of it that, get, that are seen. Just be with what's obvious, most obvious, about these tangles. Let the tangle reveal itself to you. This takes patience and trust, deep trust. And also it takes um, recognizing when that's possible. You've been practicing here for nearly three weeks and this is possible at least some of the time in your meetings, you've been reporting this possibility of just holding a suffering, that that the mindfulness is strong enough for all of you at times to hold suffering and learn from it in this way. And for me, realizing that suffering is this beautiful, beautiful pointing to love and wisdom has given me so much patience around it. That what can be revealed there is beauty and truth, love and truth, as we can hold it with mindfulness. It takes knowing when we can do that because there are times when we meet and we've talked about this when we try to meet a particularly tangled knot that what happens instead of it being a lubricant kind of letting it loosen and weaken and point out the love and the wisdom that's kind of in there, what happens instead is it just gets more and more and more knotted up. And if that's happening, if it feels like it's getting tighter and tighter, if it feels like we're kind of going down the rabbit hole of the pattern, that is not the time then to try to sit with that pattern. Then it's time to redirect the attention, work with something else, set it aside. There's lots of different ways we've talked about doing that. And yet the, there's a lot of capacity that you've developed over these weeks with which to meet dukkha. And so this meeting of dukkha is, it's, it's not like um, hmm. my, uh, 
my um, microscope kind of way of meeting dukkha was kind of like if I wanted to figure something out about this cup, it would be like I'd be taking an ice pick to it, trying to pry it apart and figure out what's inside of it and what it's made of, what's underneath that glaze, and I could smash it even. That is a pretty violent way to <laughs> go about meeting suffering. The, the kind of investigation or meeting, a being with actually, it's more one of my, one of my um, teachers at one point brought a, I think it was Sayadaw Upandita, brought a cloth up and, and said, this is how we meet experience. rubbing it with a soft cloth, staying in contact with it, that kind of gentleness. There's a different set of things that are learned in this way. It's a being with experience. One of you in the interviews talked about accompanying ourselves. That's the quality. If you notice that there's kind of ideas or views about what might be underneath, hold those views lightly. So many times when I have been investigating some kind of suffering, I thought I knew something. I thought I had some idea about what it was about, some connection to my childhood trauma on the playground or... Um, some relationship issue. I thought I knew, the, you know, just my, my, my analytical mind would come up with, with kind of very reasonable ideas about what this suffering was about. But many, many times I saw that when I actually just set those aside... It's like, yeah, okay, maybe. Maybe it's related to that. Maybe. When I actually allowed it, held it in this way I'm talking about, this gentle holding, letting it reveal itself to me, so many times I was completely surprised by what was revealed. One of the most surprising experiences I had along these lines was uh, I was practicing in Burma with Saito Tejaniya at Shweyumin Monastery and was experiencing quite a bit of low-grade depression through this time. Over several weeks, quite a bit of low-grade depression. And I could see some of how it arose and and could, you know, actually tied it to this notion of being excluded on the playground. There was a particular time in the day when at this particular monastery there was um, talking aloud at particular, you know, so so not even at particular times talking was allowed. and, And so there was a particular time of day that it seemed that people would get together and walk and talk. You know, there'd be these walk and talks happening up and down the middle road of the monastery. And I often saw this depression coming up there and it got strengthened as I saw two people kind of together talking. This idea of, oh, this is connected to being excluded on the playground. Fortunately, I just put that aside and just said, okay, well, what's here? What's happening? And I investigated this in many different ways over the course of a couple of different we- of a couple of weeks just seeing when it was coming into being what happened i actually at one point noticed it came into being out of calm mine was really calm and suddenly it was sinking into depression i was like well that's interesting huh wonder what that's about so again just noticing at times when the depression was kind of strong and I needed to kind of let myself not be just so focused on it. Just like, okay, well, yeah, that depression's there and there's lots of, there's thousands of other things happening in the present moment. So yeah, okay, there's seeing happening. 
hearing's happening, walking's happening, oh, there's the depression, okay, there's seeing, there's walking, there's the depression. They're just kind of letting myself like take a bigger container. There's just so many different ways of, of working with this depression. And then at one point, as I was walking back to um, my room, I felt the depression really kind of get strong. But there, at, th- at this point, the mind was pretty at ease with working with it. And just as I went to, to my room and did my lying meditation, because I was doing primarily lying meditation, I felt the depression like just expand. It just like felt like it was growing really big. I was like, wow, I haven't felt it get that big before, but this is what was happening. It was just expanding, expanding. It's like, okay, can I be with it while it expands? I could, I could be with it. It It's a little scary, but I could be with it. And then at some point, while I was sitting with that expanding depression, it felt like the entire thing flipped inside out and it became expansive metta. The next thing my mind did with that was had a kind of a a smashing thought, like, oh, that's sappy, that's stupid. And I was like, wow. So seeing that as the mind kind of entered into this vast, beautiful meta experience, how there was this relationship to it that like, that's sappy, that's stupid. So seeing that, that, the, that, that the kind of the mind wanted to repress the metta, that, my understanding was that was the depression. This kind of subtle, like holding down of this metta. That was not what I had expected. Many, many times in investigating some kind of suffering, I have seen love in there. Kind of with some kind of weird relationship to it or some kind of contorted relationship to it and connected also to these truths of impermanent, unreliable, I had to say that relationship, you know, around that metta was something like, well, that metta, that's not, that's not like reliable, something like that. And so, tangle, honoring the tangle allowing it to reveal the love and the wisdom. It's a very beautiful process that we're engaged in. This transformation happens. I think Bhante used the analogy around ice and water. In a way, this is a kind of a similar analogy because the ice is like when we're, when, when love and wisdom are all frozen up together. But that ice Every single molecule of that ice is, is water. It's H2O. And yet it's, it's, it's frozen, it's stuck. And so the transformation, the melting, it just changes, changes state to a fluid, malleable state. Very similar to this tangle The tangle, the tangle is the threads of love and wisdom.
And our practice helps us to hold and meet that so that we see into these truths. Our, our heart begins to stretch through this exploration to understand actually that our hearts can hold both these wishes, these, these pure wishes of well-being, of love, of connection, of care, of compassion, and these truths. They are not in conflict. They're only in conflict when viewed from the perspective of greed and aversion and delusion. And so honoring what's arising because it is pointing the way for us. Our suffering points the way for us to more deeply understand. Honoring our pain, honoring our confusion reminds me of this, I think I mentioned this phrase, a phrase from this poem at the beginning of the retreat, a poem by Izumi Shikibu. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. No part left out. the pain, the confusion, the anger, the frustration, the craving, all asking to be seen. And in a way, waiting to reveal love and wisdom. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.